Dwarf Cell Connection, we are back with another installment of No So Network. Not really bringing you a wrestling theme podcast this time around. We're gonna, I'm, I'm with Mike Rossi, of course. We're bringing in a friend of ours, Mike Riccardi. Mike, what is going on, man? Good to see you guys. Well, virtually, it's been a little while. Happy to be here. Yeah. You know, I saw that you were on Jericho's podcast again about a week or so ago. So I was like, hey, man. Why don't you give us a little details on the experience on that puck? It's, you know, it's such a unique story that we'll get to in a minute. So I figured, mm-hmm. why don't you just jump on with your two buddies and talk to us about it? And it's not the funnest story, of course. Station Nightclub Fire. Yep. Uh, February 20th, 2003. Yep. Yeah. So uh, if you don't mind, Mike, why don't you just give us a little background on that before we get into it? Yeah. So, you know, back in... Uh, fall of 2002, uh, me and my friend Jim Gahan started a, uh, a radio. A Nick- we went to Nichols College, started a radio show there called uh, Jim and Mikey's Power Hour. Um, our hashtag, well, our tagline, there was no hashtags 20 years ago. Uh, it was called Two Decades Too Late as we kind of celebrated like, you know, the 80s hair metal and, you know, glam rock and things like that. The hair metal scene, if you will. About a month or so into it, we started getting the idea to start interviewing some of the artists of the bands that we had played um, considering at that point in society, they were, you know, certainly on the back end of their popularity and their, their mainstream appeal. So we actually, it's ironically enough, we got the idea about a month, month and a half into doing regular shows on campus. Um, Jack Russell, the lead singer at great white who actually who performed that night of the, of the fire. He was on a solo tour about three or four months prior to that. I think it was like mid to late October, I want to say, of 2002. Um, you know, promoting a solo album, had a had his own kind of band behind him. Needless to say, that tour did not really do so well. The album didn't do so well. So he started resurrecting original members of the band Great White to go on a tour starting in like early 2003, I want to say. So we ended up landing an interview uh, with Jack Russell that night of the fire, about three and a half, four hours before the show started, uh, got it all on, you know, audio, video, kind of, kind of eerie. Jack put us on the guest list. We came back for the show and, you know, the rest, uh, kind of, as they say, is history. Jimmy, unfortunately did not make it out that night. So that, that's, that's kind of the background of where I think, you know, we probably want to start just kind of giving some context and history of, of the fire. Yeah, it's, uh, Tragic. I mean, obviously, as we'll probably dive into more into like the Reels episode and things later on, a lot of inspiring and uplifting stories that did, you know, come out of that. Some silver lining to that tragic night, just uh, just as some context. Yeah, you know, just not to beat around the bush, it's it's a gloomy story. And just to, to listen to you talk and you tell me about the things that are coming out of it, it's uh, it's good to get out there and good for the people to know. And it's I'm sure it's it's kind of therapeutic for you to get it out there and speak to it, too. You know, and then you fast forward. So, you know, I, I was a sophomore in college when this happened. You fast forward, you know, many, many years later, um, I did release a book uh, in 2015 called Just a Thought Away that sort of chronicled the event, chronicled not just, you know, the, the night of the fire itself, which had, had been exhausted in the media and the press over the last, at that point, uh, 11, 12 years. Yeah, because I published it in 2015, 12 years. Wanted to start telling people, you know, the story of why we you know, how we came to get there that night um, and then kind of how I carried on afterwards. Cause you know, a hundred people died that night, 200 others were injured, you know, and they estimate over 400 people were in the building that night. So you really had like 400 kind of human stories behind the scenes 
So I wanted to publish a book that kind of went beyond just the night of the fire and why we were there doing the interview, kind of like how our friendship came to form the radio show, what led us there that night and kind of like the subsequent events that happened, you know, after the night of the fire leading up until graduation. So uh, that was in 2015, the summer of 2015 that I, that I did publish that book. So about a week or so ago, I drove by this site just by happenstance. Providence College went in the Big East and all, you know, we had to go out, oh, and yeah. go out in Providence and just Justin and I just kind of just wrap up the night. So uh, I drove him home. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I drove him home and I, I told him about what we were going to do with you two. And he's like, oh, I'll drive you right by the site. So he drives by the site. It's, you know, it's fucking one in the morning, so it's pitch black. But mm-hmm. with a few lights on or whatever, I could see the size of the lot. And it's it was no bigger than like a Dunkin Donuts coffee shop or yeah. like a Starbucks coffee shop. It was it seemed extremely tiny. Was it a one story building? That's it. What, one story roadhouse style old venue. Yeah, you you walked in. I mean, it it was your it was your typical sort of, you know, rundown roadhouse where like an an aging band might play where they have like local bands, things like that. I mean, you walked in to the right was like, you know, the stage area and and like the general admission standing area to the left. You had just like a horseshoe bar um, right to the right to in front of the stage, kind of like, you know, an area for for merchandise tables, things of that nature. yeah, I mean, really wasn't a, a big place, so to speak. I mean, nothing that could, you know, really handle what was going to happen there, that unfortunately, but not not a very big venue. So it's like back to our wrestling viewing days. It's, is it bigger or smaller than Electric Hayes in Worcester? Oh, okay. uh, similar. Yeah, I'd say similar because I mean, the, the station was a lot wider. Um, it, okay. it was kind of it was wider in that sense. I, w- I would say it's comparable. So, you know, put yourself in an electric haze and something like that breaks out and you've got all those people headed for one door. You can kind of en- envision what happened. So there was only one egress. There was only one door. Well, there were multiple egresses, but 95% of the people were all heading for one because, you know, your natural in- – so so are we. Um, yeah. Your, your natural instinct is to to go out the way you came in, and there are reports, very credible reports – that the egress that was right next to the stage, which ironically enough, Jim and I used multiple times earlier on in the night to go back and forth for the interview outside to the bus. There had been a bouncer turning people away from using that exit because they weren't, quote, with the band. Even in a light of the fireworks going in light? Well, even even in light of the place literally starting to burn to the ground. Jesus. Yes. yes. And there were two other egresses, I believe, in like the kitchen and back behind the horseshoe bar that really like only regulars or, you know, venue staff would have really known about. All right. So I'm just trying to paint a picture out there. So this is an extremely small building with 400, around 400 people in it, including the band and all, everyone like that. Uh, they, 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 they estimate that they estimate around 450, 460 last I heard. So the band had a shafty fireworks they wanted to set off for their performance am i correct yeah like a little like they were like little pods almost that kind of went up like symmetrically that just produced like a 15 to 20 second almost kind of cold spark effect but yeah think of like sparklers on steroids kind of so bill goldberg wcw yeah yeah if you think of it yeah (laughs) pretty comparable not to laugh at it but just to get just to to paint a picture (laughs) just to paint a picture of it of course 
All right, so they want to do that just to boost their performance or whatever. Right. Now, Mikey, how how often had you been to that venue before? Like, was that a venue that you had been to, like, numerous times, or was this, like, the first, like, tour event you went to there? Very first time. I'd never even heard of the place. Because actually, ironically enough, Rossi, when we finally got a hold of Dan Beakley, who was the tour manager that actually physically set the pyro off, right? He actually gave us two options for the interview. He said he could either come down Thursday night in West Warwick and do it, you know, do it at this place called the station or that following Sunday, three days later, they were playing at the, at the Webster in Hartford. So we both thought to ourselves, Hey, you know what? Thursday's better. Cause we both don't have classes on Friday and you don't, we don't really want to go out on a Sunday night. So we picked the Thursday night, but that was the first time we had been there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, they were mostly known for being a venue for, like, hair metal type, like, rock acts, right? Yeah, they, um, I think, like, in the three years since the Nadarians had taken it over, um, I could be getting my timeline a little screwed up, but I, they had hosted, like, you know, Wasp, Cinderella, uh, Twisted Sister played there, um, things of that nature, and then, then, like, a lot of local bands, too, but whenever they had these 80s hair metal bands, that was, like, their big nights. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, do you think that, like, I know that you said about 450 people were in there. Do you have any idea what their actual capacity was? Was uh, So when I started reading some of the grand jury testimony and getting really deep into the facts of it, what the fire marshal supposedly had allowed them to do is that if on show nights, if you take out all pieces of furniture, and you make the entire venue standing room only, which was illegal and against fire code, he would up the capacity to 404. Even by jumping up to 404 with like the shady practice of that, they were still, you know, well over that as far as oh. who they allowed in the building. Oh, totally. Yeah, exactly. I, I, again, I, from personal experience, I would say there's probably close to 500 people in that building that night. Now, this is just to kind of link back to what you guys were talking about before with, like, comparing it to, like, Electric Haze, Ryan. Like, Electric Haze is, like, I think 250, and then when they had a wrestling ring in there, it was about 200. So, yeah, this is probably about double that size, but yeah. <laughs> probably a lot more, like, human you know, human interaction, we'll say, while you're in the building. Yeah, because, I mean, you don't have a, like, with Haze, you've got, like, a, a ring kind of smack dab in the middle of that where... You're right. You walk in the station and you can kind of freely just walk around. It was, it was just a different configuration. So instead of uh, Dunkin' Donuts, it's about the size of a McDonald's then. Just to kind of. Yeah, I, I, I would say that's pretty fair. OK. All right. So we got to the background of the story a little bit of it. And, you know, unfortunately, one of your best friends just didn't make it. And it's you know, I don't want to whatever but you this led you to writing a book and what was the book yep. about was the book about this whole night and well that's yeah the book it that night is kind of where i started it so i'm starting to, okay i i probably restarted this book i'd say easily 10 to 15 times and i'm thinking all right i i first set out to say something about you know talking about the the complete nut of the fire itself and everything that happened that night but i'm thinking wait a sec like everybody kind of knows what happened that night. Like, I mean, there was news reports all over. So if, if I did, if I focused just on that, you know, it really wouldn't have been as appealing as it had been because people already knew that story. So obviously I had to write about, all right, we went down to do the interview that night and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, wait a sec. How did we get an interview? Well, we had a radio show. 
all right, well, how did we get a radio show going? Well, because of our love of, you know, that type of that genre of music. So I'm like, wait a second. Now, now I've got kind of like a little bit of a backstory here. People might want to know, like, all right, well, how did we meet? How did we become friends? Like, what did we do leading up to that? And then subsequently, a lot of things that people wanted to know about in the years after, how did people that were involved sort of carry on and, and kind of deal with this burden over the years? So it's sort of kind of all formulating together that it had to be about more than just the night itself. There had to be some other stories surrounding it to kind of make it appealing for people. Got you. So you published this in 2015? Yep. And you were working on it for eight, 10 years, you said, leading into it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I started having the idea. I think I was actually still in college. I graduated in 2005. I started having the idea of whether doing like a, a journal or a blog or something. So the, the the conception of it certainly happened about 10 years prior, and I worked on it in various forms over those years. But the final product that I put out was probably really worked on, I'd say, like in the in the two to three years leading up to it before that, before publication. Very cool. And did you look at it as a outlet to be therapeutic? You know, what was your reasoning behind it? Yeah, a couple of reasons. Number one, therapeutic, cathartic, finally getting the story out um, in a way that I finally got, you know, I won't go into all the legal things that happened down in that state in Rhode Island because it was just, it was disgusting how they treated everybody. So finally, after all that hostility was gone, all that bitterness was gone. I got to have an outlet to talk about, you know, what happened that night, what happened prior to that night and what happened after that night. But in a way to like honor Jim's memory and tell his story, too, just because I think people wanted to know a lot about the human stories behind this. So, you know, one of my reasons, too, also was I figured, hey, if I do this, maybe you could inspire other people to do it because they were anywhere from three to four hundred unique, compelling human stories that happened that night that the public really didn't know about. So. I'd say a combination of therapeutic for myself and wanting people to know the story and, and know the type of guy that Jim was. And a legacized Jim. So Exactly. Yep. Cool. The proceeds, is there proceeds that went to with this book went somewhere or what? It was self-published. So I think every time a, a copy got sold, I probably made about three or four bucks. And that literally just went into like re-promoting it and hiring press people and, you know, flying to do podcasts with Jericho, things like that. Um, so, th- and that's never what I wanted. I never wanted to see any money out of this. That was just to get a story out. Um, with Amazon, you, you do get a small portion of every copy sold and that literally just went back into getting it into more hands. Of course. Of course. For you to spread the story. Of course. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You to carry on Jim's name and, you know, of course for yourself therapeutically. So Rossi, do you have anything you want to add to this as we get going? Yeah. So, I mean, he, being the sick fuck that I am, I mean, everything that, and this being a wrestling <laughs> podcast, everything that. <laughs> that happens in my life. I link back to wrestling. Um, and I remember Riccardi did a book signing at um, what was the book place in uh, Westboro, Mike? Yeah, uh, Tatnick in Westboro. Yeah, right over by like Julio's Liquors and stuff. Yeah, right? right over so, right Tatnick Bookseller. Yeah. We actually met, me and a couple friends met Riccardi at that book signing and then hopped in the cars and went to Somerville and went to a Beyond Wrestling show. We sure that did. was uh, Ricochet, Tessa Blanchard, Chris Hero, that type, that type of Beyond era. So um, great, for some reason, card. I always remember going to that book signing and then going to Beyond after that. And at, let me tie something in even way, way back into 2003. So when we started the show, this kind of goes back to wrestling, too. 
the Royal Rumble in 2003 was in Boston that year, the one that Lesnar won. I was there, um, brother. So, oh yeah, nice. Yep. About a month or so before the fire happened. So I tried to convince Jim to go to the Rumble. He really was Jim wasn't really much of a wrestle fan, but he was a promotion fan. He wanted to promote anything. That's, we were both marketing majors. Uh, you guys remember Worcester Wham back in the day? No. Oh, uh, the, the, the Wrestling Alliance of Mayhem. Uh, but, it's kind of where that Aaron. the one that used to be his holy name? Like, yep, that, that's terrible what, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, David Sandow. Sandow. Oh, that's okay. where Sandow started. Yep. Yep. So I had worked with that league. Uh, the owner, Bob K, is still a very good friend of mine, the promoter. And we we ran shows in like 99, 2000, 2001, kind of took a, a few years off once I went to school and, and, and Bob started a family and things like that. So in 2003, um, he wanted to run another show in April of 2003, which ended up being two months after the fire. So when Bob first got wind of it and, and told me in like October, November-ish, Jim was all about just you know, promoting it on our radio show, even though he wasn't really wasn't a fan of wrestling. He just loved to help promote events and be there. So wrestling tied in to our show even before the fire happened, which, which was kind of ironic. Now, question, Riccardi. How were you involved with this wrestling promotion? Did you have a character name you'd like to tell the world about? Oh, I sure did. That was Sonny Suavino back in the day. <laughs> That was a, that was a, uh, I did a couple shows. I, I helped, I helped kind of back, you know, behind the scenes, um, figure out some of the matches, a booker, if you will. And then I managed a couple of the wrestlers too. I was going to say, what you a fucking manager? <laughs> my, and my claim to fame was Tiny the Terrible actually press slammed me and gave me an elbow. <laughs> oh, jeez. I want footage of that. Those were, those were some fun shows back in the day. They used to run them at Holy Name, Worcester State. They would just like raise money for like, whatever the, the organization sports team were. It, it was a really fun time. And that was a, that was a very young Damian Sandow helping out there too. Yeah. Since he's a Holy name grad and all, that's pretty cool. Yep, exactly. But anyway, yeah, I digress. So that was, so the, the roots of wrestling were kind of in there before the fire even happened. You're bouncing around trying to promote this video. How do you run into Jericho? So ironically, um, I really just figured, all right, I, I, I'm, I'm promoting this book. I got some local interviews in Worcester telegram spectrum news things like that mass live and i'm like all right well i used to intern at waf so i started reaching out to them and then i'm like you know hey i got nothing to lose just just go on like facebook and twitter and start just you know tagging people and promoting things both from the rock and wrestling world so i figure hey i mean there's you know any any press is good press so i remember mick foley tw- retweeted it out um and then i i got a hold of jericho just simply like tweeted him and asked him like if he'd help just promote the book. And I, I really wasn't expecting anything more than just like a retweet back or like a, a plug or something like that. And then he's the one that had, had reached out to me and said, Hey, I think this would be a great topic for talk is Jericho. And I was kind of like pretty floored at that. And then we ended up making arrangements for me to go down there in uh, January of 2016. He was kind of, he was kind of tight lipped Cause I think at, in, in 2016, he had just come back on raw, like, a few weeks before the rumble and was in the rumble. I think that was the the segment where he interrupted the new day. So he was kind of tight lipped about why, where he was going to be at the time, but we, re- we recorded at the day of the rumble in 2016. No shit. Really? And actually me and the, uh, the uh, esteemed Adam Hughes were down there for the weekend. Oh, now, cool. before we, before we get into the interview, can you speak to like the type of demeanor that Jericho had when you got to the room? Like, did he seem like he had a, a couple libations the night before. What type oh, he, of mood was Jericho in? Oh, uh, Jericho, it looked like he had partied the night before for sure. So, you know, we'd been, uh, when me and Adam went down there, we got down there Friday night, went to a couple NXT tapings. 
Saturday, uh, like the grown men that we are, we went to Disney all day on Saturday. And then <laughs> I'd been, you know, been texting Jericho back and forth. And I think we were supposed to meet at like either 1030 or 11 in his hotel room the next morning. And then I get a text like, I got a text at like one in the morning. It's like, yeah, man, can we make this like 12 or 1230 tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, no problem. So I, clearly he had been out the night before. And uh, yeah, he, he looked like uh, he had been a little tired, let's just say. And he got to go work now, and he did like a long run in that rumble too, didn't he? He was number three. And I think he went close to like 50 minutes that night. You had to go to the WWE hotel for yep. this, uh, basically. Did you have any like funny interactions in the lobby or anything like that? So we went to two different hotels that morning. So when we found out that we were going down there, uh, Adam got to hold the sand out. So we, Jericho was staying in a different hotel than a lot of the different, than a lot of the other guys. So we first went to one of the hotels and in the lobby, it's like, I always love seeing these people out of their natural habitat. It's just so odd to see. So we're down there. We just see like Pat Patterson meandering around, um, JBL comes walking through the through the lobby. We see uh, uh, I, I always forget his name. Uh, Little Nate, uh, the referee there. He was Charles oh, Robinson. Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. He's out like loading luggage into a car for somebody. It was just like so funny to see them interacting. So we're in the lobby just hanging out with Sandow because he you know he remembers us from Wham and Holy Name and everything back in the day. And then Cody Rhodes came down and they started talking about like some Dungeons and Dragons game they had. And I think I th- Rossi that I think the <laughs> one of the things that still makes me laugh to this day is we're down in the lobby and Pat Patterson's just kind of like, you know, trolling around and JBL comes walking by. And apparently like Pat, even to this day, like still doesn't know what time Vince wants him at the arena for pay-per-views. So I remember him going, I remember Pat vividly saying to JBL, Hey John, uh, what, what time are we going to be at the venue? And JBL goes, ah, the old man wants to stay for one o'clock. And Pat just let out this, Ugh, like the weirdest old man grunt you could ever imagine. It was just me and Adam just started dying. <laughs> that was his baby, the Rumble. He was. I, I laughed too because he was wearing this like all white tracksuit, which I'm pretty sure was the same tracksuit he wore on Raw the next night because they were in Miami, and he saw you saw him backstage when The Rock made an appearance. Yeah, I oh, think that's baby. the only thing he wore for like ten years. <laughs> so yeah, we, we went to that lob at that hotel, then grabbed an Uber over to Jericho's. The Jer- I, I'm pretty sure like Jericho, I, I'm not sure what other guys were staying at his hotel, but he was at a different one than the majority of the guys because. I want to say they were probably in like, so that was Orlando. They were doing that whole Florida circuit that weekend. So they, they had a show the night before somewhere. But funny story too, that was, so this was January, 2016. Um, the previous year at Mania 2015, we um, were in San Francisco. You weren't with us at that one, right? Ricardo? No, I didn't, didn't make that one. Nope. Cause we go, go to raw and then we end up back at a bar after, cause we were hungry. Um, this was after, Rollins won the title to close out the mania in San Jose. We get to the bar and the, there's like nobody there except Pat Patterson sitting at the bar. Um, and then Sylvan Grenier comes in and sits next to him. And, um, you know, we eat our meal, we do our thing, get a couple drinks. And the next thing you know, uh, we realize really quickly that we were actually at a gay bar. All, all five <laughs> of us, all four or five of us, uh, extremely heterosexual males. Um, you know, we, we should have picked up on it when we saw Patterson there, but as that wasn't long before the interaction that you had with Patterson. <laughs> so it's just, you know, everything's just linking back to something. I just That's imagine awesome. like the scene in American Pie too, when they realize it, you know, you know, we realized it. we went right back <laughs> in for our drinks and, and enjoyed our nights though. Yeah, that was actually not? the second time we were there. Second time we were there a weekend and didn't even realize it was a gay bar the first time. <laughs> All right. So 
what's Jericho saying? He's just like, say, all right, Mike, we want to go an hour and 20 minutes. No. So basically, you know, in the days leading up to it, we've been kind of communicating back and forth. And I'm thinking, all right, well, are you going to ask questions? And, and I'll, I'll say to this day, yeah, I'm a Jericho Mark. I always will be. But like Jericho is always very well prepared for every single one of the interviews he does. When I got there that day, he's like, yeah, we're going to do kind of like a Q&A thing, et cetera. And we'll just kind of like let it fly too. We'll see what happens. We'll wing it. Um, I had sent him a copy of the book. And it's clear like he'd, he certainly read it because he was asking questions that you really only would have known had you read that book from cover to cover. So I, I mean, the, the guy is a machine. He you know wrestles. He's in Fozzie, does the podcast. And he's always really very well prepared. So, I mean, yeah, he did ask a lot of questions about that night itself because, I mean, obviously that that's going to pull people in is – they want to hear about the night of the fire and what happened, then got right into the book, you know, kind of our history. Um, he threw some wrestling anecdotes in there, too. So it's kind of akin to what we're doing here. But it was, it was a really kind of an open Q&A session that I want to say we, we probably talked for a good hour and a half or so. And then once he cut it down and edited it, I, I think it was a little over an hour we had. Yeah. Now, ironically enough, that morning also, this episode aired a couple of weeks, I want to say either before or after mine did. He interviewed Benoit's sister-in-law that same day about that tragedy. Oh, wow. So it was a kind of a really heavy day he had before coming into the Rumble. Now, is that podcast consumable anywhere right now? I know that he just switched back over to Spotify. Do you know if that can be seen anywhere or listened? There might be a YouTube link that someone kind of dubbed over, I would assume. I've Googled it before and I get it on various websites that had archived it and saved it. You can, you can still get that one. I remember listening to it while siding my house and just being a Jericho Mark and not really even like knowing of you, Mike, but not really ever yeah. interacting with you, you know, before he that. was on, he was on Westwood one at the time of that one. Right. Yeah. It was this 2016. So this is, yep. it came out springtime. Did he hold it in the can a while? It, it actually came out. He aired it on, um, I've actually got it pulled up right here. February 17th, he dropped it in 2016. So he probably held it for about a month before he dropped it. All right. So that's just me holding on to it in my can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that we found it. Like, I think Jay might have had it because, Ryan, I remember listening yeah. to it uh, on about four in the morning in Virginia <laughs> as we were driving down the main area. And, and I can tell you, on Spotify, within the last month or two, I was able to find it and pull it up, too. So it, it's still consumable out there. Now, what was the contact between Jericho and you afterwards? Uh, just kind of like, you know, every now and again, uh, if something kind of peaks, you know, uh, it peaks my interest on, on hair metal or something that I think you should know about. I was keeping him in touch with the documentary because at that point, I was just starting to get contact. About a month after the first pod, uh, Jericho podcast dropped, I got a, I started getting contacted. I'm, I'm sorry, wait, so that's 2016. So the year before is when I first started getting contacted by Dave Bellino, the director of the guest list that just aired on Reels. So I want to say that actually may have come up in the Jericho interview just very lightly. Dave, at that point, didn't really want a whole lot of details out there. So Jericho was really interested in what was going to happen with that. So we kind of kept in touch over that. Um, my wife and I had gone to see Extreme up at the Hampton Ballroom one year, and I remember Gary Sharon being on Talk is Jericho. So we would just, I would just kind of like text him here and there, like if he was going to be in town too, and Fozzie was around. So you know, every few months we'd kind of just, you know, shoot the shit here and there. No, that's cool. All right, so you brought up the the documentary in the first interview. Did he want to do a follow up with that, or how did the second interview come about? Is what I'm getting to. 
All right. So back in 2016, when I'm first on Jericho and, and Dave had, you know, contacted me the previous summer when I published the book, we literally had no idea what was going to happen with this documentary. We just knew that this guy, Dave, had a vision that he wanted to do something. So that that's seven years before it even came out. So at this point, we don't know that it's going to be on reels. We don't know it's going to be a documentary because he wanted it to be like in an episodic format. So at this point, it really was nothing more than just an idea he had planted that he want this guy wanted to do something more. So I just happened to mention that to Jericho. Okay, so that's what's piqued his interest, and I didn't know. Um, yep. So so once the reels thing, you know, so fifteen, so it took seven years pretty much to yeah. come out. Yeah, Dave said this thing got shelled. Uh, he can't tell you how many times it was on the verge of being scrapped so many times. It's uh, it really does make you appreciate like when you talk about Hollywood and show business and productions that it can take years for things to come to fruition. I, I really had no idea how much really needs to go on behind the scenes. So was did it bounce around between like buyers or I don't want to say networks or whatever? Did it bounce around between potential places to air? Is that what happened? Yeah, once so the way he, you know, we shot so many things out at Nichols, down at Jim's parents' house in Falmouth. That's really what it was, is that he had to film, he had to film this in so many different ways and formats that basically, you know, he, he had to basically pitch it to networks and to buyers that, okay, well, here's the vision we've got. And of course, I always use the uh the famous term that Bret Hart had back in 97, reasonable creative control, is that when when he's got to present this to networks and buyers. At the end of the day, you know, they end up owning it. So they're going to have some input in the creative process, too. So you I'm sure there was a lot behind the scenes that he really couldn't tell me about with NDAs that, I, you know, I can't be privy to. But there's just so much. I mean, you got to find the right buyer, the right person to believe in it. Um, you got to present it in the right format. Like, does somebody want it to be an episodic type thing, like four to six mini episodes or a, a two hour premiere, which is what ended up happening? He said there's just so many there's so many cogs in the wheel that just keep turning. Wow. Interesting. So the gist of it is he gets this going, Reels buys it, and then they publish it there through their website. And so what is Reels? Pretty much just give a background on what is Reels, R-E-E-L-Z. What is it? Our, yeah, it's a it's a cable broadcast channel. It really, I mean, I had, I don't want to say I've never heard of the channel, but I really hadn't until he told me who was, who was going to air it. And they start to do, they do like a lot of celebrity behind the scenes stories, like especially on, on rock bands. So like yeah. I've seen things on Aerosmith, Twisted Sister, Alice Cooper. So it really, it fit really well with that genre, you know, based on this, on, you know, Great White in that era. So if you ask me, Reels was kind of a, a you know, a pretty good home for it. Yeah, it, by the sounds of it is. And, you know, while looking at Reels, you do see all the the hair metal stuff and the rock band stuff and stuff like that. So it really is a perfect home. All right. So we got the real stuff going here. So what, what else went into this, Riccardi? Like who else is involved? You know, in the yep. second interview, we had Dean Snyder from Twisted Sister. So what's yep. his involvement? What's what's Jericho's interest here? And, you know, really what's going on in the world with that Reels episode? So once we finally got the word, myself, my parents, Jim's parents, we had been privy to a couple things prior to the the formal press release going out. We saw a, a screening a few months prior. We knew some details about who was buying it, when it was going to be aired, et cetera. But, you know, we we couldn't say anything. So once that press release got blasted out, Dave said, hey, any press you guys want to do now, go ahead, because th- this 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 press release went out to like 4000 different newswires today. So knowing that Jericho had always been had been interested, I sent him a link to the actual press release. 
And then he had texted me back and he said, all right, well, I want to do something, a follow-up on this with more people involved. I'm like, all right, that, that's totally fine. I gave him the, the email of the press people at Reels and didn't hear for a couple of days. and didn't know what was going on. And then he just texted me back and said, hey, February 17th, can you, can you do this? It's going to be you, Dave Bellino, the director, uh, John Barilic, who is uh, one of the producers of the documentary. He was actually one of the civil attorneys that litigated all the lawsuits um, on behalf of the uh, victims and uh, survivors and victims' families, and Dee Snyder. Dee's involvement goes back to 2008, when about five years after the fire, he ended up putting on a charity benefit concert at the at the well, I call it the Dunk, the Providence Civic Center in Rhode Island. Twisted Sister played Tesla, Boston, uh, Aaron Lewis from Stained, brought some country artists up there. So Dee was very instrumental in helping the victims get compensation before the lawsuits came down because you got to understand right like some of these people like they were it was it was a blue collar crowd some of yeah. them lost everything their their livelihoods their careers everything so d wanted to get involved and get people money asap because to be quite frank i even said this when it first happened you know where was like the the spring scenes of the world the bon jovis the aerosmiths like nobody stepped up to help out this crowd because it was they didn't want to be associated with like like with like a, a hair metal act that happened that night so let's go to the dunk real quick in 2008. Yep. So were you there? And yep. the proceeds went to the victims' families, pretty much. Correct. It went, it, went, it went to a charity called the Station Family Fund that basically just, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They gave out compensation to people they knew needed it desperately. Yeah. So I went I went with my sister to the show that night. And I remember this is, this is a great story, too, to kind of tie in wrestling back in. We're in the lobby going to get, you know, some drinks, snacks, whatever. I'm walking by and I see somebody walk by me and I take a look back and I'm like, nah, that couldn't have been him. Go back to my seat. Next thing you know, there's Mick Foley front row at the show and Dee Snyder pulled him up on stage to introduce him. It, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Very cool. Didn't Foley start off in the rafters and someone saw yeah. him, like grabbed him and brought him up front? So Dee says it in the Jericho interview too, like, yeah. Someone backstage goes, hey, guy, hey, D, like every time we, we pan the camera on this guy up there, like the crowd goes nuts. And D goes, yeah. and D goes, that's Mick Foley. And so D sent one of the, you know, agents up there to go bring him down. And he, apparently like Mick drove up to the to the Civic Center that night, bought a ticket like everybody else and just, and just walked in by himself. And then once D noticed that he was there, D brought him down to the front row and got him on stage, too. Didn't you send Foley a book, too? Or I did. I yep. thought I remember some Twitter interaction between you and him as well. Yep. He got one. He, he tweeted out for me, too. And then I think uh, I wasn't able to make a show in which he was appearing at uh, a few months after that, Rossi. So my handler, Jay Dunkley, took care of hand-delivering him a book. <laughs> handler. <laughs> what a mock, if you know that Dunkley guy. What a mock. <laughs> but, yeah, th- there was interaction with Foley, too. Obviously, with the second Jericho podcast, you had to do it on Zoom on February 17th or whatever. So yep. th- there was seven of you, or excuse me, there was five of you guys on this podcast, correct? There was, yep, me, Jericho, D, John, and Dave, five of us, yep. Interesting. Okay, yeah, that was, I listened to that one last week. It was a very, uh, it was very interesting, very cool. You all did a great job, just kind of, just like you said, to memorialize and bring light to the story. It's It's tragic what got there, but... You guys did just such a great job dwelling on all the greats and making yep. everything perfect. And I and I think there's, you know, like I say, I obviously haven't been directly involved with this years ago. You, you feel like you know everything and you've seen and you've seen everything. But even after watching the documentary and talking with John and Dave, 
there's still so many details about things that you hear about years later that you you just you can't believe you didn't know. There's just so many different stories that can come out of this. That's, it's pretty amazing. This is the 19th year, um, and yep. then obviously the, the Reels doc came out. Has there been any talk of like some sort of like anniversary event coming up when we get to 20 or 25 or anything like that? I mean, 25 um, might be a little bit early for something like that, but you'd figure that with 20, there'd be something that hopefully can be done. Because, I mean, even though, you know, it's, we're, we're 20 years past it, I still feel like there's a lane here for, you know, charity work or something along the lines that, yeah. you know, this story is still new to a whole bunch of people. So I think that, you know, there is something that, that could be done there that even if it's, you know, not necessarily victims of that fire, like, right. I'm sure there's some other areas where there could be like a memorial fund for. So has there been any talk of like future, you know, anniversary events? Nothing I've been privy to. I'm sure like as this year starts kind of winding down, like when we get into like end of summer, early fall, if anything is gone, if anything will come to fruition, I'm sure we'll start hearing about it there. A lot of the charities, whether it be the, you know, the station family fund I mentioned earlier or the station fire memorial foundation that ended up, you know, um, securing the land where that tribute is built on now, uh, the land where, you know, obviously where the building was that night. I think all those groups have sort of disbanded after they meet after they met their objectives. So anything definite, Rossi, I, I'm not sure at this point. I'll we'll have to just kind of stay tuned, but nothing, nothing that I've heard of. I just really always feel and it kind of like cemented it with the D Snyder interview, um, or the the one you guys did with Jericho is like I always feel like there there should have been more done in the, you know, in the organization of like, you know, support for these victims and you know, even yeah, people it, such as yourself that that survived it. But like, you know, you have to deal with that anguish for so long. Um, and it really got brought to light with the way that Snyder talked about it and how really there's so many big dogs in the music industry that never, you know, moved the pinky for you guys. And it's kind of, kind of sad. And, and that's why, like, you know, one really captivating guy that, you know, on the Jericho interview that day um, uh, is John Barrelick, who's a civil attorney. He worked on those civil lawsuits to get the judgments for all the, the compensation you know, he even said it himself. He goes, you know, now that we're faced with the task of somebody having lost a breadwinner in their family, you know, children being orphaned. When you look at all the list of defendants that settled with that in that lawsuit, you know, you start looking at like Clear Channel Entertainment, Anheuser-Busch, et cetera. You start thinking, well, why would they go after those guys? They were literally just trying to go after anybody that had deep pockets that could respond to a judgment. So when you hear of John's work behind the scenes and what he did to get the money to those victims, it, it's pretty remarkable. You know, he, he always says, Hey, if this happened to the Rolling Stones at the Hollywood bowl, this would have been easy to find people that were culpable and could pay the money. But because this was great white at the station in West Warwick, you know, the band and the owners had no money. So for the people to get compensation, they had to dig pretty deep to find people that, that could respond to these kind of judgments. Yeah, it's crazy. Like when you think about like even like the most recent concert tragedy was probably that Astro World Travis yeah. Scott situation. And you think of like, you know, there was, you know, a lot of people that were killed and, and hurt at that as well. Obviously not to the same scale, but everybody involved at that's, you know, probably made millions of dollars already. It's just the way that mm -hmm. the times have changed. It's sad uh, when something like that, that was so much more avoidable too. And I mean, I'm not saying that you know, the fire also couldn't have been avoided, but there's just seems to be a, a movement now where, unfortunately, the fire that you were a part of was just kind of in a bad time and bad mm -hmm. place that the people that were in, I mean, not that it's ever in a good place, but you know what I mean? 
Um, there right. wasn't really that backing. Like now with like GoFundMes and things like that, I feel like, you know, an event like this happening now, the victims would benefit so much more from it. And that's what's really sad about how it really worked out for everybody then is like Geese and I are talking about spaghetti dinners and stuff like the yeah. projects that were done were never going to line people's pockets the way that it should have that really needed it at that point. Um, that's I, just the saddest part to pull out of all of this. I, I think a lot of it, too, goes back to the fire. And, you know, I, I, I'll i say this in the most delicate way. Not, not that there's ever a good time for a tragedy to, ha- to happen, obviously. It, it was a victim of society at that time, right? Like, we were just getting our feet wet with, you know, the Internet and social media and, you know, smart. I mean, smartphones were still years away from coming on board. So in a weird way, I, I always kind of um, compare it to the, the Boston Marathon bombing 10 years later, right? 2013. I mean, you knew right away when that happened. Say like you had a you had an inkling uh, or a suspicion that one of your friends or family members might have been there. You could get a hold of those people almost instantly, whether it's on their Facebook, on the on any other social media, their phone, and know that they were okay. You didn't have that that night in Rhode Island. I mean, literally, like I had a cell phone, but I left. I had like a prepaid Nokia phone that everybody had in college. I just left it in my dorm room because I, you know, who am I calling? I don't care. Jim brought a cell phone too, but he left it in our car because you know we don't need it during the show. So yeah, no, no girls are calling you or anything. Yeah, they still don't. Um, so. That night you're thinking, well, wait a second, like you, like you have to wait for the news to be delivered to you. Like it's not this instant gratification that you get now with almost everything. So it was almost kind of a victim of its time as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and I remember like me personally, I remember going to because I, I wasn't friends with you at the time. I, I didn't we didn't really, you know, really get close until maybe like you know, 2010 or so. Um, yep. But. I remember being in college, watching the news, having this pop up, and I'm like, I almost guarantee I know somebody that was at this show. Um, yep. I didn't, like, at the time, but I, I'm like, it's going to come out at some point that I do. Um, and just small world, you know, we ended up, you know, becoming really good friends a little bit later yeah. in life. But I remember going to, like, my first concert at the Palladium after this and how how much life had changed for me as just a concert goer. To yep. then, you know, as soon as you get into the Palladium now, it's like, okay, where's my closest exit? Um, is there multiple exits that people are going to try to use? Even if this is my closest, maybe going out that one over there will be easier. It's just the way that everybody's lives change based off that event. Even even wrestling shows, same thing now. Like yep. Electric Haze, you know, like you were talking about earlier, you're almost that's almost like a concert atmosphere now itself. Um right. But everybody's more aware of their surroundings now at events because of events like this. And and it's really sad that it kind of took that for everybody to pick up on it. But um, the lasting impression that people are going to ever see from such a tragedy like this is, you know, how do we prevent it in the future? And and hopefully the world's changed at this point that something like this will at this scale will never happen again. Um, but, you, hope, you know, you hope the way anyway, it will turn yeah. is always going to be something, you know. You know, John Barrelick said it best too on Jericho's podcast. Like, as a society, as humans, we're, we're just unfortunately slow learners. It's, it, we're, we tend to be more reactive than proactive. And it's just sad that when it takes something of this magnitude to get people to think like that. And then there have still been other incidents, not to this scale, uh, like you said, Rossi, but in other countries across the world too, where this has happened. So it's it just, it's just sad to keep seeing it happen. Yeah. Well, Mike, as we wind down here, if they people want to get out more and get more information on the book uh, you have a twitter or anything you want to drop um yes 
at Michael Riccardi. At Mike Riccardi. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll drop your name in the link, and I'm sure that won't be hard awesome. to figure out. All right, Rossi, I'm sure I'll be talking to you sooner or later about some bullshit here and there. Yeah, man. We, I, I don't know, like the, the latest commercial break on 2.0 or something. <laughs> Riccardi, thank you as all. That was fun to kind of jump down that memory lane and hear your story. That was good, guys. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. We'll see you guys. Bye. Voices calling